Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, Greg McCormick here, currently driving from Vancouver Island, British Columbia, back home to the East Coast, Halifax, Nova Scotia, to reunite with the woman I love. A 5,972 kilometer adventure with my 2001 GMC Sierra named Clyde and several plants that I've adopted from a dear friend. You and your cast of incredible companions have been my company in 14 countries over the past three years, and for this I thank you. Keep them coming, compadre. Hey there, Chris, and other tangendentalists. Boy, that is kind of hard to say, but I think most of us can agree that things that are worth it tend to take a little bit more time. Uh, my name is Noah Julian. I'm standing on a track, a running track, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, about to swing a couple kettlebells around. I'm a yoga teacher with a pretty unorthodox yoga practice that spans a lot of different modalities. I was training to be a violinist in my early 20s and ended up with a host of autoimmune disorders that kind of sent me down a path of healing. And this podcast and a lot of your work, Chris, has definitely contributed to that in a very real way. I have a lot of gratitude to you. Love you all. Have a great day. Hi, friends. My name is Kira. I'm coming to you from the northern tip of Vancouver Island, where I run seven little cabins out in the woods. And basically, my days look like fixing things when they break and gardening and just listening to people's stories Um, and listening to a lot of podcasts. Uh, Hope everyone's doing well wherever they are. Hello, Chris. My name is Zach. I am speaking to you from Minsk, Belarus. About 10 months ago, the woman that I was married to, she left me. I had just gotten off of the fishing boat that I work on in Prince William Sound, Alaska. And and my life fell apart, so I hit the road. And I've been traveling now for seven months. Uh, About five months ago, while I was in India, I I met a girl from Belarus. And I told her when I was ready, I would come and visit her. So here I am. I woke up this morning and I realized that I am living a wonderful dream. I'm renting this flat that I enjoy being in, living with this beautiful girl. I spend all day reading and writing and wandering the city. Tomorrow morning I begin Russian classes at the Language University. And I I would like to thank you because you are one of the voices, one of the influences in my life that has helped me onto this journey. And I couldn't be happier to be right here, right now, living this life. So thank you. Be good, man. What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for those snippets, Greg, Noah, Kira, and Zach. Zach, I hope things are going great wherever you are. If you're still in Belarus. Is that how you say that? Belarus? I think so. Um, So cool to hear from you people out there in the world. We're all out there in the world. I'm in Topanga. Uh, This episode is with a fantastic guy. Uh, This is one of those episodes that I really love because it just sort of came out of nowhere. 
Cassie and I were in this town, Crestone, Colorado, um, on the van trip, the recent Scarlett Johansson Colorado tour that uh, those of you who contribute to this podcast help to fund. Thank you so much. Patreon, PayPal, however you do it. Uh, you paid for some of that diesel. Thank you. And uh, anyway, we we're in this town, Crestone, and we were leaving and we had heard about the fact that uh, Crestone has the only license in the U.S. to do open-air cremations. And uh, that seemed really fascinating to me. Um, but uh, anyway, we were on our way up to Boulder and uh, to record some of the episodes that I've already played. And um, on the way out of town, somebody told us that the cremation site, uh, sort of an altar, um, is on the way outside of town on the right, and they told us what to look for. There's a sign, whatever. And so we saw it, and we said, oh, let's stop and check this out. So we stop, drive back this dirt road, pull in. There's a car there, and uh, we walk up to the site, and there's a guy on his knees digging in the dirt, um, older dude in his probably 70s, uh, and we say, hey, is it okay if we look around? He says, of course. And we talk a little bit, and I immediately dig this guy. He's Dutch. I, I recognize the accent. I have lots of Dutch friends, and something about the Dutch accent, I just immediately feel positive uh, energy toward anyone with a Dutch accent. And uh, he's one of these dudes who's just like a no-nonsense, um, sort of lots of energy, uh, lots of dignity and kind of a little ornery. And uh, I just, I like the guy. His name's Paul. And uh, Paul uh, Kloppenberg, I think. Hold on a second. Let me, yeah, Paul Kloppenberg is, is his full name. Anyway, uh, it turns out he built this temple and this cremation site, and he's one of the founders of the the Crestone Cremation Project. I, that's not its official name, but uh, and and we talk a little bit about it. And I I say to him, man, you know, we're on our way out of town here, um, but we, we're thinking maybe we'll pass through here on our way back home. Um, yeah, if we did, or or if I come some other time, would you be willing to be on my podcast and? talk about this thing you have going on here. Like, why are you burning bodies in the desert? And, you know, why was that important? And who the hell are you anyway? And how did you get here? And what's your story? And he said, well, yeah, maybe if you come back, we'll talk, we'll see, you know. And I said, all right, good. And we, and we got back in our car and we drove off. It was midday. It was hot as fuck. And he was busy and I didn't want to take more of his time then. And obviously it wasn't the right moment to, you know, say, Hey, let's do a podcast right now. Um, cause he was in the middle of a project and we were on our way out of town and, uh, but then we were driving away and I was like, fuck, I should have just done a podcast with that guy right now. Cause I'm, you know, are we going to really get back to Creston or, is he going to be around? Is he going to be willing? He might be traveling. He might've changed his mind. You know, a lot, so much can go wrong and it's so much better to just, you know, pick the fruit when it's right in front of you sometimes. But anyway, we kept driving. And, um, then it turns out, uh, a friend of ours who lives in Crestone 
got in touch and said, hey, you know what? There's going to be a cremation. A woman who lives in town here just died and they lifted the fire ban, the burn ban, um, because uh, they were concerned, you know, with forest fires. I guess it had rained a little bit or something. And, and so they were allowed to have uh, a fire again. And the woman died and they were going to do this cremation. And she said it's open to the public. In fact, HBO is going to be here filming for part of um, a series they're doing on, you know, new ways of dying in America or something. So if you guys want to witness this, you can come down. So we decide, yeah, let's go back to Crestone. We drive back to Crestone and uh, spent, uh, I think, maybe just one night there with our friends and then went in the morning to the see the cremation. Uh, and that was really interesting. Um, it happens at dawn and um, a lot of her friends and family were there. And it was very, I don't know how to describe it. I haven't really wrapped my head around this, but to hear her children and her friends speaking about her and what kind of person she was and what her life was like and the challenges that she faced. To hear all that happening as her body is burning in the center of the circle of people who loved her. I don't know how that sounds to you. I don't know how it sounded to me actually uh, as an idea. But I can tell you that as a reality, it felt very beautiful. And the fire, I mean, I didn't know the woman. So my experience was somewhat impersonal, of course. But it felt to me like the fire burned away some some of the grief. There's some concreteness uh, about that experience, some immediacy, like something about the reality of her body is burning right there in front of us in this massive fire while this celebration of her life is taking place. And when the celebration is over, that fire will have died down to glowing coals and ash. There's a finality in that. There's maybe a cleanliness, a, um, a completion, uh, as much as I hate the word, um, a closure. It, it feels done. And in a way that the wound closes and can begin to heal. At least I hope that's how it is for her friends and her family. And I suspect that is how it is because, as I said, even from an impersonal perspective, that's what I felt. It felt like, wow, this is, this is it. This is the thing. This is, this is real. And the thing about fears is that it's almost... It's like the opposite of what happens visually, right? The further you are away from something, the smaller it gets visually. But with fear, I feel like the further away we get from it, the bigger it gets. The more 
abstract a fear is, the more terrifying it becomes. Whereas when it's the thing you're afraid of is right there in your face, often you find it's nowhere near as bad as you thought it would be. Imagination amplifies it so much. I think that's part of what I'm experiencing now. Um, three weeks to the day after my dad died, the thought of him dying was actually in many ways a lot more difficult than the actuality of it. Because the thought of it, you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to happen. You don't know any of the specifics and so if you're already in a state of fear and anxiety and trepidation, then you tend to fill in those missing specifics with worst case scenario uh, ideas. And, and so you, you fill in the blank spaces in the most negative ways possible. And you don't do this intentionally it's just the way it happens because you're afraid so your mind goes to fearful things and uh but then when the reality happens the specifics aren't all as bad as they could possibly could be a lot of them are much better a lot of them are maybe as good as could possibly be or you know it's a mixed bag and so your actual experience is very different from what you anticipated and then there's also this sort of uh this veil of normality over life this this the the dailiness of life that can rob magical moments of their magic, but also has a protective quality, I'm starting to think, where even when shit is really bad, it's still like a day you wake up, you know, it feels good to eat, coffee tastes good, the sun is shining, or it's raining beautifully, or there are these little pleasures that we take, hopefully, if we're wise, and I'm thinking the little pleasures are the wisdom of life. The, the attention to those little things. It feels good to take a shower, take a shit. It feels good to go for a walk. It feels good to eat. Like these very basic pleasures actually occupy a pretty big part of our experience. And the thing is, when something bad happens to you, you still have those little pleasures. And if they are a big part of your experience, then you, you haven't lost as much as you think you're going to lose. And maybe depression, maybe real clinical depression is when those little things stop registering and then you're just lost. So maybe there's some prophylactic effect for our mental and spiritual health in keeping a focus on those little daily pleasures that no matter how bad things get, they'll always be there. I have no idea why I'm talking about this. I always start these things. I turn on the mic with some idea of what I want to say. And then I promptly forget and end up talking about something totally different. And I look up and 15 minutes have gone by and it's time for me to shut the fuck up. So there you have it. Uh, Paul Kloppenberg, fascinating dude. 
you're trust me you're gonna i just i love this podcast people i love it i i get to have a talk show where i get to choose the guest i can it can go as long as we want we can talk about anything we want no corporations no studio no producer no editor nobody controlling anything it's just us and you and i just am so grateful for the opportunity to do this and to bring people like Paul to your attention. This dude is really interesting, really smart, living life on his own terms. He lives in this incredible house that he built himself. It's a fucking work of art. He's one of these people who just like sweats quality. Like it just, it just emanates from him. He made us, Cassie and I, some chai and it was the best chai I've had outside of India. You know, he's just like, he's just a guy who does things very, very well and um, has been living a fascinating life. I really admire him and I'm really happy to be able to introduce you to him. So that's this episode. I'm not going to sell anything. I'm not going to remind you about anything. You know the drill. If you want to support the podcast, you know how. Thank you uh, for doing that, however you do it, even if it's just... uh, positive thoughts. So Transition Music is going to be a song I played a few years ago by an Australian dude named Kim Churchill. The song is Don't Leave Your Life Too Long, which seems appropriate somehow. I hope everything's going great for you out there. And if it isn't, just hold on. It'll get better soon. Catch you next time. Walking one day through the big lights Wondering when the world became so tired Bottles of vodka flashed as a Coca-Cola sign Shone like moonlight And I wondered when the world became so wild Even the clearing of the streets, it was all tiled And in the corner stood a tree in a cage And in the screen on the side of a skyscraper Stood a war child nestled in amongst the stocks, the shares the sports scores of the day I thought don't you leave your life too long it's gone before it's done if you're hard away and I was traveling
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm in Crestone, Colorado, again, after a trip up to Boulder. We came back. One of the reasons we came back is that we met this wonderful man named Paul on our way out of town. We stopped by the pyre, and you were there battling termites. And uh, we chatted a little bit, and Paul agreed that if we came back to town, we could sit down and do a podcast. So here we are. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So my whole name is Paul Kloppenberg. Kloppenberg. Yeah, I am originally from the Lowlands, from Netherlands. Uh-huh. And I left when I was 18 uh, from South Holland. And I decided, you know, that country is pretty d- darn small. Hmm. And I had certain kind of, uh, I have a lot of urges to travel, to explore. This 19, uh, July 23rd, 1920, uh, uh, 1969. So there I am, hitchhiking, simply going east. No destination in mind. Uh, not particularly. I had a little bit of an inkling I would meet up with Tibetans. <laughs> That's pretty far east. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and these would be the Tibetans that just had then escaped from their homeland uh, and would then live in northern uh, India in the Himalayas, in Ladakh, uh, Leh. Yeah, yeah, northern India, Nepal, and yeah. yeah and so that's sort of that whole band. Is that w- that was that the year that the Dalai Lama got no, out? No, Dalai Lama earlier? was more like fifteen fifty nine. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. He. So they had not been there that long. Uh, I saw very much still the beginning stages of them getting uh, being still very much refugees. So you you made it on uh, that trip. You made it to uh, northern. I India. got stuck in northern India in a, huh. in, a, in, a in a province called uh, Himachal Pradesh. Yeah, where where still many of them live. Yeah, yeah. So things were very primitive for them. Yeah. Uh, many had to work on roads and uh, uh, road repair up in the high country because that's what, of course, you know, the Indian government, you know, were really nice to even accommodate, you know, them mm, still yeah. today. Yeah. You know, that's very commendable. And they don't have Indian citizenship. Or do they? Uh, yes, they can have. Yeah, okay. Yeah, good. they good. can. But still, their uh, passport situation is, uh, you know, and going anywhere in the world is always still a little bit uh, difficult. Yeah, yeah. While you said passport situation, you nodded your head like an Indian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, I, you pick up certain uh, mannerisms. It's a nice yeah. one. I like that. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it a, took me time to figure out how to do uh, that. Little, <laughs> little roll. Yeah, a little bit of uh, tipping the head back and forth. Yeah. yeah. You know, I still have a habit. Uh, still to today and this morning, I was making masala chai. Mm. You know, I have it right here in a thermos cup. Yeah. And I must drink at least three of these, so that's six cups of masala chai. Genuine masala chai. Yeah, it's really no big deal. Anybody can do it. Yeah. I don't know why people spend so much money if they really like it so much. Why not buy yourself a pan? Yeah, and loose tea and five kinds of spices. You have that long sock that they use in India. Uh, well, I don't have a grandma anymore, so I don't have the sock. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nice. Yeah, that's all only because they're poor. They don't want to buy a strainer. Oh, really? Is that why it is? Oh. It's just a straight. It's, it's I thought there was some ancient technique they were doing. Mm, uh, yeah. Not really. Yeah, it's more practicality. Yeah. So why? Why? Uh, let's take it back before we get to India. Let's take it back to Holland. You're 19 years old. Is that what it was? 18 years old. 18. 1969. 
So a lot's happening. It's uh, the revolution, student revolution in Paris is happening. Prague Spring was earlier, I think. But yeah, Amsterdam Provost. Provost. The Amsterdam Provost. In Holland, we had uh, as tiny as that country is. We sort of had our provocateurs. Ah. We used to love wear, wearing a white denim. And paintings white, painting things white. Huh. We in effect started really an environmental movement. Really, other than being very lefties. Yeah. Um, uh, the concentration was definitely in Amsterdam. Uh, that made my it hometown, even though it was a real town, uh, still provincial. Provos did a lot. Hmm. They, they, they were provocateurs, so right? So was it like a street theater kind of thing? All of the above, you yeah. could say. Like the Poetry UPs. reading and, yeah. yeah. It, you know, they didn't really want it to be such things as hip. This was definitely provoking and right. loosening up authority. Right. Uh, definitely being anti-authoritarian. Right. I was thinking uh, of the yippies. You know about them? That, all came, that came all kind of a little bit later. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, this is uh, 64, 65, oh. 66 already. The provosts were coming on quite strong. Oh, okay. And yes, it, it, it did connect in one way or another all around the world. Really, you know, all around, all major cities in the world did have that 60-ish yeah. phenomena, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. Huh? Seems like it. So, yeah, yeah. You know, we did sort of our version. Yeah. Um, then I was an artist in a near town called uh, Haarlem in Atelier uh, 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 63, um, which has moved since to um, Amsterdam itself. It was pretty, f pretty far out kind of setup. Were you in um, school? No, it was really more in an old military um, building, or, or um, what do you call it? You know, like a, a barracks. Yeah, but really nice building, yeah. four stories. And you occupied it. And we, you know, the people that started this particular school institute, the main thing was to have everybody have a studio, and you could do your work. And then you would have a quite well-known uh, Dutch artist, whether it be sculpting, whether it be painting, whether it be lithographing. Mm. And the painting here would be a la William de Koning, mm. you know, action, the action painting, yeah. very passionate, right. very a lot of, lot of bold colors. Yeah. Uh, I was more towards um, um, sculpting, the, the, and I was more towards being outside. And getting people involved, mm. having more like a an earth art. Right. I did sort of one of the earliest forms of earth art, huh. and of course none of that exists. And I certainly didn't own a camera. <laughs> yeah. So there was definitely a temporariness to it all. And you were a teenager, so young. Yes, I was the youngest of the whole international uh, t t uh, congregation of artists. Really? They came from America, they came from Spain. God, that sounds they came so exciting. From, 
It, it, to it be was, a kid in that? It's very dynamic. Yeah. I was quite out there. Yeah. I was quite almost beyond avant-garde-ish, frankly. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, teenagers are crazy anyway, and you put them in that situation. Yeah. Holy uh, shit. And I sort of had my cohort guy, uh, Alex, Alex yeah. von der Kran. He's still there. I've not really been in touch with him. But, for example, we do crazy things. I would strip the white sheet of my bed and I have always I always was wearing a long black coat and my hair was cut in the back it was like pre-punk time mm. so I had sort of two sort of tails behind mm. me and in the middle it was sort of white skin huh. you know oddities like that and so I threw that white sheet around me and I said Alex let's go downtown which is really the square yeah the open square in Harlem H-A-A-R-L-E-M, yeah. near Amsterdam. Very quaint little town, still today, very touristy. Yeah. And there's this big open square, of course, near the big church. And we, 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 we laid down that sheet, and he sat on that on one end, I sat on another end, and it's around 9.30 in the evening already. And we sat, we had no plan. This was purely spontaneous. We, had, we didn't even talk about anything. We just sat there, meditating. We, in a way, didn't even know what we were doing. It was just sitting there. And then people came closer and closer, coming around us. And you could notice that the restlessness of the public became more and more sense of agitating. Now, I always carried balloons with me. I always had a pocket full of balloons because I one time did a big project, so I had a lot of balloons still around. <laughs> so that was the only act I did after 25 minutes of sitting there on the cold ground. It was somewhat winter time, it was quite cold on oh. my butt. And I blew up a few balloons and I kind of m made it seem like as if they appeared out of the white field of the sheet. Mm. Well, guess what? The public came closer and closer and some, some people would throw cigarette butts. And then it would go like poof, boom, boom. And people started pushing. And people started to kind of getting more and more agitated, saying, leave them alone. They're not doing anything to you. And, you know, so the folk, the public starts taking sides, mm -hmm. protecting us. And some are being agitating and starting to push other, others. And at some point, somebody just fell on me. And it really hurt a lot because I was very stiff and cold. Mm. And we both knew. We never said anything. We just stared in the middle of this white sheet. Both me and Alex knew, time to get the hell out of here. Mm. So that's just one little episode. And you just got up, took the sheet. Yeah, we, and we took and we crowd. just kind of, yeah, we made our way and the people parted yeah. and we just left before things got too, yeah. too scary. Yes, a police van was in the distance yeah. uh, watching the scene, you know. They were not doing anything to agitate anything further, but they just were there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, so I thought that would be. It is interesting, uh, yeah. yeah, how art can be. Just, just the the way people react to something becomes a, an artistic. Do you, the yip, do you know the thing the yippies did at Wall Street? This mm. guy Abby Hoffman I mentioned. Yes. They they dressed up in suits. Yes. Like businessmen and had briefcases full of one dollar bills. Yes. And they went to Wall Street to the observers' deck up yeah. above the yeah, trading yeah. floor. Yeah. And rained them down. 
Mm. All those people trading millions of dollars, the whole world economy shut down because they were desperate, clawing over each other to get those one dollar Oh, bills. it's so symbolic too, isn't it? Oh, man. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful yeah. piece of theater. Yeah. So I, one of my best friends is Dutch, Martijn van Dijvendijk. His father is an internationally famous dyke expert. <laughs> He's like as Dutch as you can get, this guy. His sister works at the Rijksmuseum, or did years ago when I met them. Um, but one day, he and I were walking down the, walking through Amsterdam. We knew each other from Spain. He'd lived in Spain a long time, as I did. And uh, I, I said something about how everyone has these big, clean windows, and the curtains are open. And so as you walk down the street in Amsterdam, and probably other cities as well, yeah. you can look right into people's lives. You see them in there, reading a book, sitting, mm. having a conversation. Well, TV is on now. TV's on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or But something. you look right yeah. into their living room, into their lives. Mm. And I said something to Martin, like, wow, I love how the Dutch have no shame about their lives. And they're just free, and it doesn't matter. And I'm thinking of, like, women on the beach, topless, and the sort of Dutch open mm -hmm. quality right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and martin said ah oh, chris it's not really that it's that if you close your curtains your neighbors will start talking about you and wonder <laughs> what's going on in there <laughs> yeah well you can put sheer fabric sheer oh, which is you yeah. know a very light yeah. kind of thing yeah. so you know partly to do the buildings and the rooms are only so big Mm. so that you can still enjoy some of your gardening right. and your flowers. A little light and uh, Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Because it is actually darker there. It's a little bit more of a northern oh, country. In winter, it's very dark. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it has various functions. But the sheer fabric allows less looking in, in a way, and yet having some sense of more communicating yeah. or being uh, what is, you know, What is happening outside? Right, you right. Know? Yeah. Well, what do you think about Dutch culture? I mean, you, you're 18 years old. It's 1969. You took off. Was it because you felt that Holland was, you said it was very small. Did you feel the culture was, was limiting you? Well, you know, one has to look at one's family, of course. Right. How, one, how I grew up and in what kind of context. Yeah. I had four siblings that were 12 years before me. Oh. So, and they were in Indonesia, born in Indonesia. Oh, okay. and, and me and my sister were born 12 years later. She was born in 47, I was born in 49. Mm. And right yeah, after the war. Yeah, uh, three and four years for me then, yes. Yeah. You know, it was really the, the priest knocking on the door I think it could be. Yeah. And uh, saying to my father, well, Mr. Kloppenberg, uh, what about some, you know, we as Catholics, we, you know, we, we procreate. We, you know, what about another family? You know, the war is over and come on, you know? Wow. And so he did. With the same woman? Well, my mom. Yeah. Yes, they survived the, the war. The Japanese concentration camp, oh, the most god-awful hell realm that you can imagine. Yeah. They survived all that. They were booted out, you know. With their children uh, in the camp? I, oh, yes. My mom alone and my dad had to build that god-awful railroad up in Burma. Oh. So they made it out. They came and had to more or less start over. Right. However, the family, some of the family wealth was still 
partially there, but a lot was lost sure. because it became nationalized, and rightly so. Yeah. After so many years of t- something, 259 years of colonists, mm. at some point it's, the time is up. Yeah. That's how it is. And what was your family doing in Indonesia? You know, the rubber thing, rubber. Uh, spices, uh, you name it, you yeah. know, before coffee. Yeah. Natural latex is rubber, yeah. plantation. Yeah. Co- uh, co- cocoa, uh, co- uh, chocolate type stuff, mm-hmm. you know. What island uh, were they on? Uh, uh, Java. Java, right. Yeah, yeah. Java. So. Most of my family was born in Surabaya. However, my mom was born in Zundert, mm-hmm. which is uh, near Breda, my hometown. Oh, back and in Zundert is the famous birthplace of Vincent van Gogh. Ah, yeah. And we had a farm there as well. Uh, and yeah, I definitely have a close affinity. I always say my brother Vincent. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been to Java? No. No. It would be difficult for no. you, do you think? No. No, it wouldn't be difficult. No, it's. I don't know why. I, I've been so much India. I've been. I've been way more in Tibet and China and you yeah. know India and Nepal. You know, so, that's just certain place that yeah. one, that one gravitates to, yeah. isn't it? You know. And what was the the pull of Tibet for you? <laughs> you t- know, the Tibetans culture. were the most joyful people, the most earthy, the most practical, the most mm. resourceful. Had you met some in Holland? No, never. So how did you, what, what, what was your it's idea? Just a, it's just, no idea. No. Okay. It's just, <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. I, it was just what you call, you know, I, I kind of hesitate to use the word karmic this and that. Yeah. But, you know, there are certain things that we are sort of born with. And so you have a bit more connections to a particular scene in your mm-hmm. life. We certainly had Asia in your family as a major. Presence. In a way, I did that yeah. part. Yes, yeah. I'm Indo. I, therefore, I'm really Indo-Dutch yeah. family. Yeah, yeah. Were your parents? I, I'm sorry. This is a stupid question to ask. Even if your parents were traumatized by the experience, of course they were. This is the big difficulty. There was just no way that they could deal with all the PTSD type situation. Yeah. And it was all that, you know, hence it, it rubbed off in a negative way to me. Sure. They really didn't really know yeah. how to really raise two more children right. in a different... My my dad died way earlier. My mom survived another 36 years. She had she lived alone. She was not going to get remarried. That was certainly not in her, uh, you know, in her mindset, you know. Yeah. And it, it's definitely is, at least in my family. See, this is interesting. I was recently in Holland, and that has been about eight years. I had visited. I have only one brother, one sister left over. And my sister said... Do you know, Paul, that not everybody dealt with it the same way as our father and mother? We, I have perfectly, perfect examples of very same situation where they dealt with it very differently, way more skillfully. So it's not a cookie-cutter uh, situation yeah. that, you know these people that come out of these horrible concentration camps that they're all going to deal with it the same manner and therefore you kind of have to live live on in that victimhood if you will yeah so that was yeah. sort of an interesting comment by my sister who is now 77 yeah 
And so, yeah. Yes, it definitely affected me. Sure. I will never waste any food, uh, for yeah. example. Hmm. That's a no-no. Right. That's just not what was acceptable. Right. I mean, it's really a form of a degenerate society when people start wasting food. Yeah. It's a form of a degeneration of a society. And I noticed it recently in China. Uh-huh. with my Tibetan friends there mm. and I said you know I really have a great dislike of what I see happening here how much food is carted off now I have to say there's always a pig or there's always some person that collects big buckets of this f- they do indeed do so but here in this country yeah, things truly get thrown away in yeah. the landfill so, yeah yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about your parents' experience. I'm, I'm trying to imagine. They have this incredibly difficult experience in these Japanese camps in Indonesia, which are notorious in history as being one of the most difficult places to survive. They survive. They return to Europe just as the war is ending to a devastated Europe where almost everybody must have been suffering from PTSD of one sort or another. Yeah. One could say so, but you know, there's something about the human beings and the homo sapiens that, you know, you pull up your bootstraps Hmm. and, you know, and it really depends on the individual and the family makeup and where you sort of have to start from and go to work. Now, I must say that maybe in the audience... uh, that you were somewhat mentioning some, some, you know, the sort of the age group. Um... That might be a little bit hard to understand. Sure. Uh, you know, That's because, the value of it. Uh, you know, how much hard work and how much sacrifice these people made. Yeah. And, you know, I really like to mention this word, frugality. Frugality. There is a healthy way of having frugality. without having to be poverty-stricken or doing that sort of negative association with it. Right. You know, there is something about a healthy way of having frugality. So, number one, you don't need to get further in debt. Number two, you really, in a way, start learning more what you really need. Mm. So you don't start over-consuming because it's all BS anyways. <laughs> and too okay. much ends up in closets and garages. Yeah. And then you have to pay rent and, and, for the uh, space uh, yeah, to yeah, put yeah. your shit. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and yeah. it truly does not make you happier to have the newest sneakers yeah. or the newest <laughs> uh, uh, whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. And things can last a little bit longer. Yeah. You know, it's not like you have to have ripped up pants and patches like a real carpenter dude, you know. So it's all a question of, uh, you know, a wise frugality, yeah. maybe you could say. One of my favorite quotations that I read when I was probably 18 years old, and I'll never forget, is from Henry David Thoreau. You know mm-hmm. him? Mm-hmm. He said, a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without Mm. I've always thought that's so true. Mm. That is so true. If you, and the, I spent years traveling with a backpack, just a backpack, and that was all I needed. And I felt so wealthy because mm. I always had enough. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it sort of feels like this country has come to the end of the road of waste and 
The excesses. Excesses, that's the Yeah, there's yeah. certain excesses that indeed hopefully will now fall by the wayside. Yeah. And yeah, and that you know, indeed, certain things can be made better and then be repaired. Yeah, you know, by golly, there's somebody there that could actually repair and have actually have a little business. Yeah, and there are towns where you get together to repair stuff. Yeah, it's a wonderful practice. Yeah, by the way, I should mention that we're sitting in a beautiful house that you built. Yes, right? it took yeah. 12, years. Yes. 12 years. I'm a builder and a contractor in the past. Yeah. took 12 years. This is what's called an all-adobe home, which is sun-dried mud brick. And it's built with the principles of the four principles of passive solar heating. Mm. You know, glass, insulation, uh, where does the heat go to? Should go to mass, mm -hmm. and then as a fourth principle is that you can move the heat around, so you have vents and you have openings in top and bottoms of your walls, yeah. so it can go to the north rooms. Ah, right. Those four principles. Right. Are you familiar with Earthships? Yes. Yeah, I recently met uh, Michael Reynolds, the yes. designer of those. Yes. It's a little bit unfortunate that he puts slanted glass in a climate like this. Those places become like real ovens. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's a little bit tricky. That yeah. slanted glass. There's also a lot of hail here. I wonder if if a lot of that glass gets broken by hailstones. I saw yesterday in Colorado Springs there was hail like baseballs. Yeah, yeah. or golf balls is enough to put a dent. Yeah. In your, uh, in your hood of your car. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so back to Tibet. So you left, you were hitchhiking? Is that how you traveled? I traveled all alone. I was not necessarily the only one that was doing this. Sure, yeah. As a lonely hippie, you could say, <laughs> by that time. The hippie trail. And, yeah, to go all the way. But many did kind of pull together a, a bus mm. or something because it's safer. Even then, in 69, a particular section in uh, Afghanistan you only could uh, that's the only time i paid for a bus kyber pass and, and no it was before you go to kyber uh, pass i think it was between kandahar and then reaching the border part to uh from afghanistan and pakistan mm -hmm. yes that was the only time because of I, danger uh, yes bad you know bandits yeah people just like to take your money yeah. and uh, who knows what what nice things you can find in the backpack you know, my socks got stolen in uh, Turkey, you know, nice wool socks, you yeah. know, gone, yeah. you know, yeah, so it's, but overall, that could not be done in today's world, yeah. 2018, yeah. you will get kidnapped and you will either get beheaded or you then want you for money or yeah. God knows what. Well, American passport, you can't even go through. Yeah, I have a Dutch passport, nevertheless, but it don't yeah. matter. Yeah. 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 So what was your route? You went uh, down through Turkey, Eastern Turkey to First Iraq? simply through Europe, yes, and then Istanbul and then uh, Armenia. Uh, that sort of northern uh, yeah. northern Iran. Iran was actually easy because, you know, the conflict was not there because the Shah was still in power. Oh, right. And Afghanistan was really incredible. It was a very normal, running, indigenous culture. Mm -hmm. You know, I never noticed anything other than, you know, uh, groups of bandits you find that anywhere yeah frankly yeah. Uh, so that was really wonderful and then uh, Pakistan uh, when I reached the border between India and Pakistan 
I, uh, I had to walk over this long bridge. Uh, there was no traffic because that's been t a lot of tension yeah. between India and Pakistan. Was this in Kashmir or did you go down? To uh, more like near Amaritsar. Amaritsar, yeah. 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 You already get, uh, you know, you you get well into, yeah, not that north. Yeah. yeah. Is that the border where they do those wild dances and like it almost looks like flamenco? Do you know what I'm talking about? They they pass a baton or something every day at a certain time. I, I can't. I think it's that border uh, crossing near Amritsar. Uh, yeah, they have the military has some kind of a routine. I think. Yeah, yeah. very Is elaborate that what you're and ornate. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, they they but they dance and they have all these feathers and it's, it's a crazy <laughs> thing. I remember seeing a documentary about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was in Kashmir uh, shortly after Indira Gandhi was killed, and they wouldn't let me get off the train in Punjab because of the tension with the Sikhs. Yeah. Um, but I did get up to uh, Srinagar. It was November, so it was impossible to get up further than Tulay. So I went through two wars living in Himachal Pradesh, which is the, nor the northern state that sort of hugs the Himalaya foothills. Yeah. Of course, Dharamsala is there, so Dai Lama had barely finished his what you see now is his current um, monastic scene and mm -hmm. so-called palace which is pales by comparison of what he had in Tibet for the Potala palace uh, yeah Potala yeah. you know yeah. I mean yeah and by the way the Chinese were smart enough uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping was smart enough to send his personal army to protect 11 important sites in, in, in Tibet mm. that could not be destroyed by Mao's Mao's troops, mm. and Portala was one of them. Really? Yeah, he was. He was. He was smart enough to huh. to uh, to um, look ahead, so that the fanaticism, because there were so many young PLAs, you yeah. know, uh, the the PLA uh, young 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 fanatic military, you know, bombing everything. But yeah. but to stay more to current times, um, the Tibetans really made the best of it. You see. They just really worked hard, and they really did well. Yeah. Even the earlier generation, um, you know, businesses, um, trading, and so the, their children could go to schools, and you know, they did well to kind of uplift themselves yeah. and make the best of it. Right. Uh, and as a people they must be very accustomed to difficult conditions because Tibet has to be one of the hardest places to live well the whole thing is to do with diseases when you live in that high in a plateau such as when nothing is lower than 12,750 feet which mm. is the lowest point really? and then you go up diseases and other things that just don't exist ah, things like insects so right. for them to come in tropical country was really hard yeah. and many did actually not make it yeah especially the elder people the heat the 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 new the new diseases the things with food hmm. you know was very different yeah still is different yeah. when they come for a Dalai Lama event in South India, they show up with, with sheepskin ropes, chubas. Yeah, it's totally unbelievable. Yeah, that's what they have. Yeah, and so yeah, it reminds me of the conquistadors going through the Amazon with their iron 
armor (laughs) (laughs) sweating and yeah 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 so out of place yeah yeah but the thing is that one tuba can really protect himself you know against many things of course in their country right yeah because the rule is inside you see ah okay yeah the tuba it's a very handy thing you can protect your face and the wind you know it's very harsh you know the winds there's not a tree to be seen in many parts of Tibet there's certain parts in Tibet where there's beautiful forest Mm. actually Mm. very big trees really at that altitude Uh, well that's really a different part that's Uh, more like saying to the right side of Bhutan and a little bit uh, above Bhutan okay you know then you're really getting into a different you know rather than the plateau proper down in the foothills there's not one tree to be seen Yeah. yeah yeah Wow. Hence, hence the yak dung is so super important for fire. These, these big patties, you yeah, know, yeah, that are simply picked up by women and children, and you know, made into like sort of big pancakes and slapped against the mud wall. Yeah, super important. Yeah, to get through the winter. Yeah, I remember seeing that all over India as well. The cow dung for yeah. burning. Yeah. Uh, was the Tibetan Buddhism part of the attraction? Did you study that? It slowly sort of came to me. Meaning, you know, in a way it was a very natural fit for me. Mm. In what sense? It's simply, it's, you know, just as things as they are around me. You know, it's teaching such as like everything is impermanent. Yes, I mm. can see that. Mm. You know, yeah. things such as cause and effect. Yes, I can see that. I can experience that. Sure. It's more to do with personal experience and then the teachings you get. Yeah. And when you start verifying that by simple, uh, you know, inner experience, then, and it, you know, if it actually corresponds and it makes sense, then it simply is just so. Yeah. That's kind of how it was for me. I love the the open door feeling of Buddhism, where there's no secret handshake. There's no, you don't have to pay money. If you want to be a Buddhist, you are welcome to con- call yourself a Buddhist. And if you it's a very to, personal journey, yeah, and it really has to come from within. Yeah, yeah. Do you, you know, know one important point to uh, point out really is the. The, the question of theism and non-theism mm. it's definitely a non-theistic exactly journey. yeah and and the other the theism part may sometimes creep in in the beginning because uh, people love to have reference points and mm. a little bit of anchor but mm. once you really get deeper into it it's purely your own experience from within and how do you feel about the teachings around reincarnation since we can't really experience that in a single life well this becomes uh, this this is highly uh, in some sense you know that's very personal in some ways it's very easy to say from well that's what i believe but can it will it make sense for other people sure you know one needs to kind of keep that as an open space in a way you know right and for people to see find out for themselves whether such a point is simply so. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, reading The yeah. Way of the White Clouds. Yeah, uh, Lama Govinda. Yeah. Yeah, quite who, romantic. Who was German, I believe. Definitely yeah. German. Yeah. Yeah, he was an early explorer. Yeah. Beautiful book, as I recall. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. it very much. And I remember he was somewhat skeptical about the 
the whole idea. And he had an experience when he was traveling in Tibet, and he learned Tibetan, right? And he, mm-hmm. he could read yeah, the he ancient knew, he actually, texts. He, he knew both, yes. Yeah. Uh, speech as well text, yeah. which is extremely helpful yeah. to get the innate quality. Huh? Right. And one of the first Westerners who could translate out of the original language. Yeah, I don't. I, it's been years. Do you remember that there was an a, an incident where it, I think it was one of these things where he his friend had died, who was a lama, an older lama, and he had like his comb or some some gift that the the lama had given him, and he came to the the um, temple where the reincarnation of that. Lama was mm-hmm. this little boy was there, mm-hmm. and as soon as the little boy saw him, he said, "Oh, you! I know you!" And the kid was like five or six years old. And mm-hmm. Come over here, and he talked to him about things that were impossible for him to know. Mm-hmm. And then when the man uh, took out to the comb or whatever it was, the boy said, "That's my comb! Give me my comb!" It was this uncanny specificity to mm-hmm. the experience. Mm-hmm. Happens in the Western world too. Mm. With younger children, yeah. that memory of things of the past. Yeah. I must add, though, the whole thing of the um, the finding the teacher. Let's say a teacher passes, and then finding the reincarnation is fraught with difficulties. Mm. Especially now with the Chinese uh, playing uh, with it. Not only that, but just even within the Tibetan community. Mm. The politics that surrounds this, you know, it's called finding a tulku, yeah. those that are born again, mm-hmm. you know, really is what the word means. Um, uh, I must say, I, I don't really feel after so many years having now been involved that it really does them well. Mm. I feel there's more negatives connected to it mm. than positives mm. in that whole system. Right. Because it can be very easily manipulated, yeah. Because of family wishes and politics and money, yeah. And influences here and influences that, so you know it becomes rather messy, yeah. Very quickly, and that's unfortunate. That's it's like a wound that can get infected with all these corrupting Boy, and cannot cause deeper problems, yeah. More than just the pus that it even produces <laughs> yeah systemic problems yes yeah. yeah so i feel yeah. rather um strong about that yeah um maybe many other uh, pr- tibetan buddhist practitioners or people that are simply interested in tibetan this and that may not necessarily agree with me but the thing is it's undeniable how messy it gets yeah I remember when one of the supposed reincarnations was found in southern Spain. Yeah. And at the yeah. time, I think I was living in Spain. And, and yeah. uh, I remember thinking, ah, oh, this is very convenient for promulgating uh, this religion in Spain or this philosophy or what have you. It just seemed like, yeah, how unlikely is it that we find this reincarnation on another continent on the other side of the world i don't know the mechanics of reincarnation are beyond me obviously well you see already here in our two minutes of talking about it yeah yeah right away i kind of go like "Hmm, Mm, yeah how does this really all work yeah you know 
Of course, it's like everybody else, like regular people. When you get born, you need training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need schooling. Yeah. And then if there's a certain giftedness or a certain potential in people, it needs further per- position and further uh, 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 stepping stones yeah. of upping that particular potential. Right. It's the same as with Tuku. Yeah. And if if that particular training does not really exist in the proper way, it even takes more of a nosedive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think all babies are are born uh, magical beings in some sense. There indeed are. I yeah. had my first grandson Enzo. Yeah. I saw him born 16 months ago oh. in Durango in an old ah, place. Congratulations. My daughter wanted me to be there and it's it's true the things you just do not forget yeah. of that whole birthing and 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 the tremendous power of it. Yeah. And and yeah, the the uh, the, the audibles, you know, the the woman, the mom that is giving birth, you uh-huh. know, the audi- the audibleness, yeah. the the screams, yeah. The, yeah. the joys, you know, when it's finally, it's done, yeah, it's there, yeah, know? yeah. That must be amazing. Yeah. I've never experienced that. Yes, yes. I I actually have helped with all of my other grandchildren as well. I was a very early what you would call house husband and mm. very, but you know, we were then living uh, near Seattle and a book came out Our Bodies and Ourselves I remember that book and that was yeah. a very very empowering self-empowering book yeah. for the for women yeah and you know if you form a team you know husband and wife you know the man is, can be just as involved sure um, with the whole process as yeah. a matter of fact we go to the La Masque uh, Lamas classes, teaching, yeah, you know, and, and the breathing, and you know, all my children are born natural childbirth. Uh, how many children do you have? Uh, two daughters and one son, and then four grandchildren, yeah. and and they all followed the same path of basically natural childbirth. Yeah. You know, it really shouldn't be that a big a deal. Yeah, and yeah. once we're, not we're really, animals, we we should yeah. not really, in a way, give in to the industry yeah. of the hospitals and modern, so-called modern medicine. Yeah, people give in way too quickly, yeah. you know, and yeah. the amount of cost involved is shocking. Yeah. Whereas if you yeah. just get a doula, it's called a doula now, yeah. and a midwife, and maybe even you know, once if you want parents, there's knowledge there. Mm. There can be, you know, there's simply there can be, there can be a calmness. My daughter wanted me there, basically being the rock, you know, just being there of a sense of stability. Yeah, you know, not necessarily to be the midwife per se. Yeah, uh, she was already there. Yeah. So anyway, so, and it doesn't need to cost nine, twelve thousand dollars. You don't need to administer all kinds of uh, chemical things. Yeah. Yeah, you don't need to right away cut the umbilical cord. Mm. You know, give yourself time. Let that blood from the placenta go. These things are all super important for yeah. the health of the, ch- oh, the children. God, the and yes, for crying out loud, do breastfeeding. Yeah. Forget about all that bottle stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I've been researching the microbiome, you know, the bacteria in our guts. Mm. And the baby, when the baby is delivered vaginally, the mother's the... the exactly. It... Fertile, it goes into the mouth and nose, 
for a lifetime. And if the baby doesn't get that, he picks up the bacteria from the room, mm. from other patients, from the curtains, mm. from the doctor. Mm. And that's what stay, gets in his guts mm. forever. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. incredible how important. I mean, we're so arrogant thinking we can short circuit these, these processes that have evolved over millions of years. And we know better. And every time we find out we were wrong. Mm. And yet we keep doing it. You know, it's a certain amazing. simplicity in the whole way of living is really going to be more important in the future. Well, that's what I was um, saying when I said I think we're exhausted. We've come to the end. It feels like now there's a turning. In medicine, doctors are looking at hunter-gatherers. In diet, mm. this is what my writing is about, is hunter-gatherers and trying to mm. bring wisdom from the hunter-gatherer life to the modern world. So I, I maybe I'm biased, but... I, you're not biased. I'm not biased. I do the walking in this valley. What right. do I walk? That's called arrowhead hunting. Oh, do you? I do find these old paleo things. Oh, I wow. do find these scrapers. Well, you have to show I do me find these uh, knives. Yeah. I do find these early drills. Well, this was a sacred area, right? Is this well, the I've whole valley, the San Luis Valley, is yeah. a real big valley where there basically used to be way more wet. And once you have more wet, mm. that means you have more fowl and you have more uh, animals. So this was here. wetlands out here. This flat so area. So many lakes here. Oh, yeah. uh, it's now so super dry because of irrigation. They've both. Just there's up. industrial yeah. circle irrigation. Yeah. Yes. And there's a massive aquifer under here. Huge. Yeah. Which I think we will have to fight for to keep. Yeah. Because the Denver metro area, which is four and a half hours from here, they certainly would want a piece of that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, yes, I have found quite a few of those tools. Yeah. Uh, it's not so easy because it's, you know, so there has been, been already so much surface hunting. Yeah. Yes. The earliest people to walk this valley is probably earlier than the Clovis area. Wow. Uh, earlier than Clovis, which is 13,500. Yeah. Uh, it's becoming more and more evident that people were earlier coming into North America. Yeah. But you know, when you think about these kind of time spans, this place is so virgin mm. compared to other parts of the world. Yeah. You know, my sister was living in uh, Mozam, uh, no, uh, uh, Tanzania, mm. and you know that whole rift zone. Yeah. People have been there for two. Uh, well, since cliques, they were people, oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> and you know, almost yeah. like two million years ago. Yeah. So compare that to the yeah. geological time here. This is such new country. Let's say people start coming here finally, sixteen thousand, seventeen thousand years ago. Look how early that, look how not long ago that is compared to other parts of the world. So that makes this part, North America, in a way uh, kind of exciting Hmm. and virgin-like. And of course, a a lot more needs to be learned. Have you been to Alaska? Yes, I lived there. Ah, what part? I was actually working in the oil fields. Oh, up in the drilling rig. Up on the North Slope. Oh, yeah. I'm a true North Sloper. Huh. That's 110 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Prudhoe yes, Bay. Yes, Prudhoe Bay Field. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was in that on a, on a drilling rig. No kidding. Yes. I. How long? I did it almost for three years. Wow. Yes. Is yes, that one of? Is that like a four-week on, two-week off job? Two weeks. 
two on, two off? Uh, seven days off, six days off. Oh, okay. But since I was single, they always call me up uh. to <laughs> fill in uh-huh. a, yeah. a, a guy that could not be there. Yeah. I worked on fishing boats in a cannery up there for a couple of years, and I met some guys from the oil. oil yeah, it's a different world. Yeah. That oil, that oil patch. Yeah. It's a different. They're very independent. Yeah. These people. Yeah. They they pride they pride themselves to be a pretty independent crowd. Yeah. There's no such a thing as unionizing a roughneck huh. or an oil field hand. You know, they they like to roam, and mm-hmm. if they don't like something, they will say bye. Hmm. You know, at least that's how it was with me. Yeah, I, I, I did my greenhorn, meaning being a worm. Yeah. You know, they have all these beautiful words <laughs> for when you get initiated yeah. in Texas, uh, south from here. Yeah, in bloody hot Texas for nine months. Why? What? You just needed the money. Or? I wanted the money, and then I wanted to go to school, and I didn't want to get in debt. You know, mm. you see that thinking? There didn't want to get in debt, yeah. and you know, and get money. And then I wanted to do industrial, uh, become a, have a degree in industrial design mm. because it combines art, art history, and utilitarian things. Right. Industrial right. design. I never did it, huh. but that was the plan. That was so-called the plan. Yeah. So. I, there's a big missing gap here. You you went to to Tibet to northern India. No, no Tibet. The, to the, the, India. That means simply Tibetans came Tibetan to northern India. Culture. Yeah. 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 How long were you there? I, I was there four there. and a half years. Four and a half years. That yes. first trip. Whew. I never moved, and there were two wars there, and the police always wanted to boot me out. Sure. Because any foreigner must be a spy. Yeah. Must report to the CIA. How did you deal with visas and things? You have to leave oh, every six months. I was so stubborn. Months? I was as stubborn as an ox. <laughs> Meaning, I start learning the ropes. It doesn't work and, generally. Uh, well, you know, when you are really kind of stay steady and. Yeah. You know, I had to get a financial guarantee. Mm. Some painting was sold to my family. Some money came my way, and I had to put that in the bank. And you know, I did whatever was necessary. I never saw that money back, incidentally. Right, sure. That the that Hindu family India. simply took it. Yeah. I mean, that was that's a hopeless case. Yeah. Uh, so I did whatever. If the local office in Lower Dharamsala would say, you know, give me a piece of paper from, you know, we order you to leave, I would say, well, this is not from the home office in Delhi. I'm not going to leave. <laughs> you know, it's just stubborn. <laughs> but, you know, stay... Uh-huh. Don't be impolite. Did you spend any time in Indian jails? No. Really? But my some of my friends did. Yeah. Smuggling they hash would, and things? No, they would swear oh. and call police people certain names, uh, yeah. which I'm not going to repeat. Yeah. They that's, indeed had to do jail time. Yeah. So that's why I was mentioning yeah. one has to be a little bit more, what is the word, suave? Yeah. A bit more like, you know, you stay yeah. a certain politeness, but firm. Yeah. I learned that in India. I, I The first couple of months I was there, I was very frustrated and very Ooh, unhappy. Pe- people can get so frustrated. Ah, it's cr- it was crazy. And then I met this Australian guy in um, Pushkar in Rajasthan. And I saw the way he traveled. I saw the way he laughed. All of, He just laughed. And then I saw the way that the Indian people responded to him. They mm-hmm. liked him. Mm-hmm. And I... They and they're they're suspicious of Westerners in general, at least where I was and when I was there. But 
But the way he laughed and his friendliness, even if they didn't understand what he was saying, just the friendliness and openness of it mm -hmm. made things possible that weren't possible for me. Right. I really learned from him. It's called, you need to learn how to go with the jive. Yeah. Yeah. The way black people down south right. can have crack a joke, even though things are really not that easy. Yeah. And have a sense of humor and understanding the irony and the dysfunctionalness of things. <laughs> yeah. Why is this damn train not here? Yeah. And it may not come that evening. <laughs> or and that you week. have to sleep on your luggage. Yeah. That's filthy. Yeah. Rather filthy place. Yes. Yeah. You gotta go with the 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 scene, the yeah. blows and the and the and uh, yeah, the, it, it, yes, it's it's hard to describe. Yeah. Even today in India, yeah, it, it, I would not claim that I really understand India ever. Yeah, it's it's a fountainhead of so many things, so many religions, so many deities, yeah. so many languages. It's this kind of well, this fountain of ongoing creativity and. And they have such a creative mind. Yeah. They make you believe anything. Yeah. You sit in the train and they will start talking. And before you know it, the guy already has a couple of PhDs. You know? <laughs> and you cannot take it too seriously. Yeah. So you just got to yeah. go along. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it? I agree. I, I think it, that's why it's such an important place to travel. Because if you can travel in India, mm -hmm. you can probably travel just about anywhere. That's totally true. Yeah. Yes, that counts for all the South American countries. Yeah. And counts yeah. for, well, China is becoming way more modernized now. Mm. Yes, it's it's true. So if you added up all the time you've spent in India, how much, how many years do you think it would be? Because I know you went back for other trips. Oh, I've been there at least 12 more times. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. It's, uh, but I have done much more work in the Tibetan Plateau building clinics mm. and helping people there mm. helping the tibetans directly so you and that means you work with the chinese right you know hey wherever you go the regular people are just like you and me mm. meaning you know they want good life good yeah. jobs yeah. three times a day some food yeah and you know no commotions no shootings no this right. no matter where you go yeah Whenever you work work with the authorities or uniformed people, there again, you know what you got. Mm -hmm. They're all the yeah. same. You know, it's very similar situation. That there's a certain kind of caution needs to be happening there, and depending yeah. how hot the situation is, yeah. you know, or how much they watch you, yeah. you know, then you still got to work with that situation yeah. one way or another. Do you speak Mandarin or Tibetan? No, or? no, no Tibetan. I used to know a little, but yeah. it's really kind of no Mandarin, yeah. no Hindi. Yeah. No, no. Tibetan, I used to know. I was just at the point kind of becoming more con conversant what is the word yeah conversant conversation like sure. yeah reading was quite okay because i had to translate my own text before uh -huh. i could practice this was so early there were no things you know in place yeah. you know there were no schools there were, no, there were very few translators i guess you've read seven years in tibet do you know that book yeah Hen henry Harn. Yeah yeah, yeah 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 of course, I also read Trumpa Rinpoche's book, uh, Born in Tibet, when uh, he was escaping, uh, you know, and then he became a well-known teacher in, yeah. uh, in the West, you know. 
cutting through spiritual materialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's still an important book today. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's probably in its 13th or 14th printing. And Shambhala, I think, yeah. is also one of his books. Yeah, that I uh, read years. Sacred Path of the Warrior. Exactly, is yeah. the Shambhala book. I think it's. I think it's still very relevant. Yeah, because it's a very eclectic. It's very non-religious and can be applied mm. to just about anybody. Is that the, the lineage that you were interested in? Or? Well, he developed that later. Mm. You know, he did not uh, develop that right away. He did purely more like Buddhist teachings, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. Mm. And then he concurrently developed the whole Shambhala teachings. Yes. Uh, yes, he was really shaking us up. Did you know him personally? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I knew him uh, well personally. You know, meaning yes, I've been around been in the room well while he yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was not necessarily really in the inner inner circle. I mean, uh, but I n definitely knew knew him. Yes. And it, the, it's it's clo close. How it's, do you feel about the controversies around him now? The the sexual stuff and the drinking and. People it never seem seems to, to stop, does it? Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that um, any center, even today, in today's world, no matter which, who is the teacher or whatever structure or where, which country, there's always something of that sort, some shenanigans, isn't it? <laughs> now, is that a re But he, my understanding of it is that he was n not... It wasn't something happening in the shadows. It was that he was, was completely the way he was. out front about it. That's what I mean. Uh, he yeah. was completely. Uh, yes, he did drink sake. Yes, he did have. Uh, you could. Uh, there's no uh, if and buts about it. The alcohol. Uh, the alcohol. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was. It took his liver. Yeah. Frankly. Forty-six or something. Yeah. Uh, Forty-eight. Yeah. Forty-eight. Um, the difference with him is that indeed he did not hide behind the Sochi screen. Right. He did not want to be a hypocrite about it. Right. And everybody could see, you know, that there were particular ladies. To my knowledge, there was no lady that was there unwanted. Mm. That's a Again. very different thing. Right being there in an unwanted situation and being right. forced sure so you also need to look at a particular teacher what do they produce what do they you know what kind of books what kind of teachings mm. what did they put in place mm. yes there were you know you could say shenanigans and things that were pretty hot topics you know yeah, uh, that people could focus on, and people could say, "Well, you know, I, he could never be my teacher." Fine, Fine. you know. Yeah. But when you look at the final product of the particular teachings that he left us with, and all the different parts of in segments of life, in terms of how to have a household, things in the arts, things in movie making, things in poetry writing, so many other things that he was involved in. Naropa, it used to be called Naropa Institute, Naropa University in Boulder. Mm -hmm. You know, these are all products from his mind. And then we helped him to put it manifested right. as Alzheimer's. Yeah. 
as first wavers. I, I regard myself as a first waver, the wave that first went to Asia mm. and then maybe returned to the respective home country and then in whatever capacity we continued. Yeah. You know. I don't have currently here in Crestone much Buddhist group affiliation, right. yet I do many things that are uh, you know, Shambhali and, right. and sings for the community, you yeah. know, yeah. so, yeah. So, it's really like, okay, what is the product that yeah. a particular teacher leaves behind and how sustained is it? I must say it's pretty remarkable yeah. how many people actually are still want to read his books and want to go to study groups yeah. and the kind of form in the way he presented this whole body of teachings without falling into the cultural trap of having to introduce so many cultural thingies mm. you know he was not into that yeah you know and we did it together yeah he gave us the confidence it was just not like him sitting there and having to be the central position you know uh, that's often a mistake that uh, teachers make you know becoming that if you get too close with him, he would kick your butt. Mm. It's like the fire. The guru mm. is like a fire. Mm. You get too close, you get burnt. If you go too far away, you get too cold. He was very good at pushing you away and pulling the carpet and leave you suspended. Mm. So that is a way of saying, I don't need you coming to kiss up my ass. Yeah, uh -huh. kiss my so, ass. Yeah, kiss, yeah, kiss something, right? So <laughs> the brown you nosing. Can, you can say anything. You know, you well, no, well, this is anyway. So yeah, you, you get the point. Yeah, of course. So yeah. that's the that's a refreshing thing that yeah. you don't always see today. One of the things that I, I. Oh, I tend to defend him when this subject comes up. Not that I know anywhere near a fraction of what you know about the situation, but to me, the problem is hypocrisy. It's not sex. It's not alcohol. It's not drugs. It's hypocrisy. And if you, and my understanding is that there is a well-established tradition within some parts of Tibetan Buddhism where wisdom is sought through sensuality and excess you know what it really comes down to what is really going to be more important there are so very important teachers really high up sort of so-called lamas or, or teachers they are really looking for a different modality because stuff is not necessarily working that well in asia in nepal or right india here. in their own scene yeah and what I feel that what Trumpa Rinpoche gave us and the, the way that we did it, that we mutually created, he really appreciated us so much. You know, he did not want to do it alone. He did it with us. Right. Thousands of us. Yeah. You know, that's what we worked for. I think we have something so precious, a certain modality that is neither heavy-duty cultural Tibetan thing and neither like so much Americana or European, the EU, whatever that may be, you know, and that there can be enough healthy questioning, yeah. that teachings can be really, can stay fresh, like a freshly baked bread. That's what he was so good at. It was not stale. Mm. It was very applicable to now, mm. and it still is. Yeah. So that modality needs to be revived, I feel. Yeah. And yes, there have been unfortunate things happening, 
with how the Shambhala International uh, scene went because mm. of too much focus on a single person. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The umbrella is much bigger than only uh, white upper middle class people. Right. You know, and I've always said to my fellow uh, compatriots and fellow practitioners, you know, the teachings are only as good as you see color in a meditation hall. If you don't see any color, that means you have not really reached the other people. Right. And America has a lot of different color. Hmm. Not in Boulder. The, the his, not in Boulder. <laughs> and a little, I, I also should note, not in Crestone yeah. as such. Yeah. But when my daughter lives in California, she, she said to me, we, were to, we went to a bar recently to uh, celebrate my son's uh, master degree from Naropa Institute. Mm -hmm. We went to a real loud bar and we, me and my daughter was there and she said, Dad, when I look around here, boy, people look so the same. Yeah. When I go to a bar in LA or San Francisco, you see everything. Mm -hmm. The Hispanics, the Asians, yeah. the black people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's actually delightful. Yeah. So, to come back to my point, your particular Dharma teachings is only as good, uh, is only as successful by the measure of how much color you have in your meditation hall. Mm. I know that's a pretty high level to reach. Yeah. A high, uh, what do you call it? A, a high, high bar. Har bar. Yeah. Har bar. Yeah. Har bar. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Do you, did, has your experience brought you in touch with uh, Osho or any of the other no. teachers? You're no. strictly with. No. I was never really particularly attracted to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm way too as uh, investigative myself, mm. and I would not really uh, uh, jive uh, with my particular personal experiences to kind of to go into that. I know there's recently have been that film, yeah, uh, Wild Country or something. Yeah. You know, very well done, and yeah. it's really an eye opener. Yeah. There again, if there's too much focus. You know, on a particular, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to get too opinionated about it. Uh, they did their thing. Yeah, they did some beautiful things, no doubt, yeah. quite yeah. incredible. But it did fall apart, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So wh how did you end up in America then? I married a, a, a woman from New Hampshire, huh? from Keene, New Hampshire. Keene, in in in. in uh, in New Delhi, in a hotel room. You met her in, in Asia? Mm, yeah, actually, we saw during my artist time, she came to visit uh, the art institute where I was. So, yes, in, in Harlem, in, in, in Holland. When you were a when teenager? I, uh, when, well, I was were still you? only 17, 18. Yeah, yeah. And then it took four or five years to meet again. Yeah. Wow, really? Yeah. That's a hell of a love story. Yes, and that's no. before internet and all this stuff. Oh, you, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I would roll a joint, I mean, you know, and there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a spliff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were the times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she came to, you wrote, you corresponded, and she came Then she came, you? she had gifts from Trumper Wimpichi that we then had to give oh. to, give to uh, a, a pretty important uh, teacher in Kubuntek, Kamapa. Uh, we never got there because so there she was part Anigan. of the same community. Uh, she was actually with Trumper. Uh, then already yeah. early time yeah uh, okay yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. And so that brought you to America? and then Yes, that gave me the green card. Uh, yeah. That was waiting for me at the yeah. Boston Logan Airport. <laughs> Those were the days. Those were the days. Uh, America yeah. was welcoming, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Those were, that was 73. Yeah, we're September in the process of getting my wife a green card now. It's not so easy anymore. Yeah. It's like a huge journey yeah. and struggle. Lawyers and money. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, and it was a, a place I would be more interested in arriving then. You would think it would be easier now where things are problematic. Um, what is something on the floor there? No, that's something caught my eye because yeah. of the way the sun is. Oh, yeah. I thought maybe a cat was wandering by or something. Um, so, in, so you're in New Hampshire, and how do you come to Creston? Oh, that's, of course, a much longer story, because the, when I was there, that's 1973, and then I met my in-laws, uh-huh. and he had a couple newspapers in South in Keene, New Hampshire, the Keene Sentinel, still exists. Very conservative? No, totally not. Oh, good. It's op- opposite of the Manchester That's United. what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. the counterpart. Ah, the, okay. The typical thing of a state, Yeah. you know, they only can have so many newspapers anymore. Yeah. Or oh, way more like opening and writing those kind of stories yeah. that were actually pretty uh, advanced for yeah. those times, the LTGB type stories. Oh, really? Know, yeah. Kind of opening up more wow. awareness about that, even then. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. They gave us a car, uh, my, my new in-laws. And, you know, I fit in perfectly in the New England scene because I come from a family... Mm. You know, we have certain culture and um, in my family, so it was an easy fit. Never met, yeah. you know. There's actually. a self-reliance in New um, England, and of course, we both were very much sort of like, "Whoa!" You know, coming, you know, me especially, uh, my entrance into the Western world was not that easy in the first five, six, seven months. Yeah, and then we settled in uh, in Vashon Island off Seattle. And uh, we had a very simple migrant, a migrant home for for migrants that that picked berries and things. Mm -hmm. Fashion Line is right off Seattle. Mm. Yeah, is that what you were doing, picking berries? No, no, no. We we set up a Dharma center. What else was Uh there in the, what what else was in the pipeline? Uh But set up a Dharma center. Me changing the chicken coop into a meditation hall, Uh and. You know, that sort of was sort of already in the works, you know. Yeah. We just continued. And was your wife a teacher or were you teaching? She has since become a very prominent teacher, uh-huh. Lama, Lama Sultram. Uh-huh. She has her own big center, Tara Mandala, two and a half hours from here. Uh-huh. Are you uh, still together? No, no, we, we, we parted a long time ago, but we, we get together for family occasions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, she has a big, huge temple. And she has her really hard fought fought journey. Yeah, it's quite remarkable what she has accomplished. Yeah, uh, Tara Mandala and Lama Sultram, because as a woman you always bounce up against mm. patriarchy. Yeah, patriarchy is still very strong. Yeah, and patriarchy causes certain things to happen in Dharma centers. Yeah, such as sexual abuse. Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you know, she she had often to, you know, what do you call it, swim upstream. Yeah. You know, 
yeah. and, and get boulders come her way, big things come her way. But she hang in there, and you know it's a beautiful sangha, mm. um, beautiful temple. Where is it? Pagosa Springs. Oh, okay. Big huge land. Yeah. Twenty one taras, and uh, a round temple. Amazing, amazing place, really. Yeah. You know, to That's to great. have one person. You know, attract, with all the attract all that energy, mm-hmm. yeah. attract all that. You know. Yeah. That's pretty beautiful. You know, yeah. It's quite amazing. I was uh, with your neighbor Pat earlier, and he showed me some photographs of a temple that you guys helped build recently right here in Creston. Beautiful. Yes, they're building a, a quite a extensive temple. Yes, yeah. I did it about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. I was involved in more stupa building, Tibetan-style monuments, stupas, yeah. uh-huh. here. We have three. Yeah. And I built, I was very involved in Trumpa Rinpoche's 108-foot, all-concrete, monolithic concrete stupa for Trumpa Rinpoche up north, in near B- Fort Collins. Oh, in Fort Collins. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 108 foot tall. It's one of the largest uh, monuments. It's all that. concrete, poured concrete. All poured concrete, monolithic poured concrete. So you built the whole, the, all form. the forms and all the designs were in the forms <sighs> while we were going up and up and up. Wow. Yeah, quite amazing. Wow. Yeah, it took thirteen years. Have you ever been to Burning Man? No, but it's really something that would fit with me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really would be like a glove that it would could fit. Be, could be. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of dust and heat. Uh, a lot of dust and heat. Yeah. An amazing building. I went last year. Is the only time I've been. Mm-hmm. But some of the structures that they build in just a couple of weeks are yeah. just extraordinary. It is. It is. I, then, I, I, I often somewhat. How do you say the word drool? But my eyes yeah. are watering really? by looking at YouTube yeah. uh, footage of you know many years of uh, the temple, the central temple. Would you and, go if someone offered you a ticket? Well, yeah. I you know I I am not in a way like the real big crowd person. Yeah, and it's a big. It's crowd. kind of in a way morphed into quite a. I don't know how to, you know, I'm not really that qualified to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it's pretty commercial at this I mean, point. Even though they do have interesting um, rules yeah. and, uh, fr- uh, what do you call it, this framework. Yeah. You know, there's the no gift money. economy. Yeah, yeah. there's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, I, I love the creativity, though. Yeah. The, definitely. Well, if yeah. someone listening to this happens to contact me with a free ticket for you, I'll I'll let you know because last year I expressed some interest in going and a couple mm-hmm. reached out to me and gave me two tickets. It would be a blast. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It would be yeah. interesting. I think, and that would be for me a blast in a very normal, clean way because yeah. I've become much more clean now, so to speak. <laughs> you know, I have. I, I don't know why. It's just like I don't work as hard. You know, I don't. I don't inebriate myself as any form of anything. Yeah. It's just straight. Yeah. So but how old are you? You, you told 69 me. now. You're 69. Yeah, 69. You're yeah. in great shape. You've I'm not doing bad. Yeah. yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm 
I swim. You know, swimming oh, you? is swimming is important to me. Where do you swim? A hooper pool here. Oh, there's uh, a pool. Yeah, nearby. there's a real yeah. pool, and it's very family oriented. Oh, and cool. I can do, you know, yeah, because you know exercise. the arthritis and yeah. uh, so many years of working. You yeah, know, and gives yeah. you. It's called wear and tear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, look, we've been talking over an hour, and we haven't even gotten to the the thing that I that made me want to talk to you in the first place. Which is what point? <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know it's a good conversation, where I just forget what really, I mean. it's been an hour. But which points? Well, I, you I mean, the, the original thing I wanted to talk about was the pyre and and uh, or the Creston end of life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, work that we do. Yeah, because we met out there at the pyre. That yeah, day. you're right. You're right. Um, and uh, you know, it's well, that's a, that would be an important touch to uh, to to kind of complete. Sure, okay. because that's my community work. Right. You see, right. I really like to work with the people that you find here in the community because yeah. it is a community-driven uh, organization. Volunteer, yeah. you know, right. it's not spiritual group. You know, driven meaning by only, let's say, by only the Buddhist. Yeah. No, we leave our uh, um, our spiritual hats out the door yeah. when we have meetings. Yeah, that's in itself is an interesting discipline. Yeah, because you know, once you get involved in such a strong spiritual group, you know, you get all to know the particular sloganism, the particular mm -hmm. group think is there, right? And that's sort of what it sort of only is then. If you just do a particular community or sangha or spiritual group, this is totally different. Mm. You work with many, many different parts of the community yeah. coming together for one thing, serving the community in a non-denominational way. And the way we do this is to provide uh, people with a way to have open air cremation. It's the only place in North America that does this in a non-denominational non community, you know, driven away. Community here means the larger community. There's only 1,600 people here. What was the impulse? What, uh, what, what? That happened years ago. Yeah. It happened years ago when I was doing cremations ad hoc. It was almost like the moving cremation scene with my big Ford, 350 Ford stinky um, diesel truck. That would be like the pyre, the hearth, you know, the stones. And I would set it up in the middle of... Uh, in the bed of your truck? Yeah, in the bed of my truck. That's sort of the moving, you know, there would be a phone call. Oh, my spouse or so-and-so or so-and-so family member. And we set it up in the cul-de-sac, you know, open space. The only requirement there was just to have enough space so nothing can catch on fire. Right. And having uh, a life... A water hose, yeah. garden hose. Yeah, that was it, and we did that five, six times. And there was no legal repercussion. Like, where's the body? Where? How do you get it? Well, we did. Yet? You know, we were very primitive as all the legal work at that point because yeah. there was no organization. Yeah. And then you know, a woman stepped in by the name of Stephanie Gaines, and there was a pause. At some point, we decided, you know, so sometimes it became a little bit difficult it was not enough of a container mm. yeah. it was not really organized well enough yeah then we had a pause meaning not doing it anymore for almost a year but then yet the community still wanted it why 
Because people want to take ownership of the diseased, of their loved ones, rather than carting that off to some kind of commercial uh, entity. Mm. People in this country, there's a big new movement, a whole new tsunami wave of different awareness happening. We happen to be just a part of that. Hmm. Now, since we have already been doing this now for for 12 years in an organized fashion, and people can go online, it's called Informed Final Choices, and we, you will see a real beautiful website there, and Crestone End of Life Project is right under it. So it's really to bring people to a consciousness and give people those type of information so they can become self-empowered. Mm-hmm. So do you think it, it's sort of like... A a correlate to the home birthing movement it's almost like a home dying movement it's called the home funeral yeah the home funeral and there's many many in different places in america now and often there are women that starting these little businesses and these little you know because uh, each state in the united states indeed have their own laws and some of them are actually quite amicable hmm Meaning, it, you know, it helps to make use of certain uh, written laws, written mm. on the books. Right. Such as, in the state of Colorado, you can have a person that's passed for 72 hours in one's home. Mm. Right there. Yeah. And that's where an organization like us comes in, can right away help within the first hour and a half of after passing away. We have the body... Uh, we have a body team, body care team in place, then all the official paperwork, you know. So there's a whole set of things that are already in place. And either people request to do open-air commission, we're going to have one tomorrow morning, and HBO is even going to be there. And we can have the why, it's kind of like a why, either people choose to go open-air commission or the green burial. Mm-hmm. Green burial is where the body is buried just in a shroud. Yes, indeed. It's very minimalistic. Right. Right. Uh, And that happens near Crestone Hamlet. It's not even in town. It's 110 people. Yeah. You know, people, we don't want to take more ownership of this whole process. Yeah. And it actually becomes a very self-empowering type um, um, aspect in people. I have seen so many people come to a cremation being even not even knowing, Paul, I don't know if I can really do this, you know. And then we would simply say, well, we will have somebody there with you at home and you can decide later. And invariably, people will still want to come to the open air cremation. And they invariably, after three and a half hours of the whole process, when the last bits fall through the grate into the blow in the firebox, there's a big pile of, of ashes and parts. You can see bone, but not that much. You know, we do the whole thing in a very tasteful way. You know, you hardly ever will see the body because we keep it covered. You hardly will ever smell anything. Mm. People always ask about that. Yeah. So people walk away from that whole ceremony tremendously relieved mm. and, and empowered and even a sense of joy because the, f- the finale of it is so obvious 
it's mm. right there. The finality, yeah. The finality of yeah, it. Yeah. And 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 therefore being able uh, to to let go, you know. Yeah. You know, it's done. Yeah. The whole three days is now done, and then the next morning we have the cremains, you know, gathering the cremains. Mm. So that's in a way a the closing part they bring a container and it's often no more than four shoe boxes to give people that are listening some sense of uh, so it's very little material. and a lot of that's probably the wood ash isn't it yeah very, that's true yeah. yeah and we pick out the largest charcoal pieces mm -hmm. and people have basically the gray and indeed uh, 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 the more bisque uh, bone pieces, you know, to become more bisque because fire is very hot. Yeah, and the smaller, yeah. the smaller yeah. pieces. Yeah. People want those pieces huh. to become relics. Yeah, and then they can disperse of them in their own way. Yeah. So it's much more personal. Yeah, the whole setup is way more personal from the beginning to the end. Yeah, and we simply are there to serve the people and help them with, you know, the body care, keeping it cold. And so, you know, people can just more naturally process their grief, mm. you know, already for two and a half days. Yeah. You know, that you really give people more the time. That almost becomes the crucial point, allowing people the time, you know, to do this. Right. Rather than this quick, 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 and so sort of mechanical, and then... You know, yeah. but of course, the regular funeral industry is still fulfilling a very important job. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure they're going to tweak their particular mannerisms and their, yeah, you know, offerings. Yeah. 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 So, so does that kind of sum it up? It nicely? does very nicely. You know, it, it's it's really important work, and yeah. people can do this. We have an implementation manual that we have really worked hard on. Mm. And this implementation manual is about 65 pages. And the whole skeleton, everything is written down there. Mm -hmm. And people, you know, anywhere else in America, you know, if they really wish so, and then work with the community, take that manual as a, as a skeleton, as a beginning yeah. sort of way of uh, then adopting it to their particular county, right. their particular, you know. Yeah. So yes. You know, we really hope that, you know, people, it doesn't need to stay in Crestone. Right. We don't want to hold on to it right. at all. Right. And this is only available for residents of Crestone yeah. anyway. People, people can't come in here. Right? Yeah. We, we, we yeah. only volunteer organization. Yeah. And we could not really do on and on and on. Yeah. 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 We, we would get burned out. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. People yeah. would get registered first for $10 mm -hmm. to get all the paperwork. There again, you know, people looking at all the Five Wishes booklet. And people, you know, we do like registration parties, we do death cafes, mm. you know, it's all the familiarization of mm. terminology, right. people can share during death cafes, sit around round tables, and simply talk about passings yeah. and death, and, you know, it's not morbid, it's just very real, and uh, often there's actually a lot of laughter. Yeah. So it's totally opposite of ignoring, as if impermanence don't exist, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Thank you for doing this, man. Yeah, I really appreciate well, I, your time. I, I guess you could sense that I'm, yeah, I'm into it. 
I hope so. Thank yeah, you. And, and yeah. I hope the people, that the listeners can pick up on that enthusiasm yeah. and also become self-empowered in their particular community. Yeah. And yeah, you know, doesn't need to stay here in question. And I hope I hope they can sense how clean you are because you took a bath just before we sat down. Oh, I, I <laughs> yes, I feel very refreshed indeed. Yeah, <laughs> thank, thank you. you yeah, yeah, okay, bye bye. That's what I'm talking about. What a cool dude! Again, thank you, all of you who support this podcast for giving me the opportunity to hang out with people like Paul, drive Scarlett Johansson to the little, little town in Colorado where he lives and uh, just make this thing happen. This is a dream job for me. So really appreciate that. And uh, without further ado, I'm just going to play the great Carsey Grant, Carsey Granton, Carsey Blanton, Smoke Alarm. Uh, let me just run through my little list of, uh, pull it off the wall there, list of people to thank, things to do. Uh, Basin and Range, of course, they do the song. At the beginning, uh, it's called Bright Side of the Sun. You can hear their music at basinandrange.bandcamp.com. There's a Reddit group talking about this podcast. Go on Reddit, look for Tangentially Speaking, you'll find it. Uh, My mom's got shirts, you know about that. And there's a Discord server where people are talking about the podcast as well. And uh, I guess that's all I have to say. I don't know. I, I... You'd think after 300 and some episodes, I'd have this worked out, but I like to keep it fresh. So that means kind of disorganized. All right. This is Carsey Blanton. She's singing Smoke Alarm and uh, very appropriate for this particular episode. Thanks for listening. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal If you wanna be free 
say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 